On April 28, 2001, Ming-Cho Lee sat down with designers Jim Ingalls, Robert Wurzel, and Paul Teswell to discuss collaboration throughout the design process. Hello, I'm SDC Director Walter Bobby, and you are listening to Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. This is all my fault. (laughs) And it may be a mess. It may be a mess. But I have always thought that it's so boring for Robert and Paul and I and talk about what designers do and collaboration. And all you guys are being talked at. And I, I hate that. I really hate that. And so I thought it may be interesting to actually create a mock session as if the director, the set designer, the costume designer, the lighting designer, and the sound designer are getting together for their first meeting to do Winter Scale and see what happens. The, the, the bottom line is that the designers should feel that they ask questions, they talk, they express their opinion, whatever, and at the end, they should be ready to go home and pick up a pencil. And I also said that the director, being the famous busy director, for the next two weeks will be in Amsterdam. So therefore, the designers will not have a chance to even talk. And no email, no cell phone, nothing. <laughs> now, and the reason I'm doing that is because, again, as I said, that the whole thing is transformation. And the first meeting, you should pretty much get all the things so you're ready to start doing the work. Any more talk and words are a waste of time. Hence this rather unreasonable rule. And then we run into a little problem saying, who are going to be the designers? And I think it's a bad idea to get students from NYU or Yale to pose as designers. So, so we said, why not having directors functioning as designers? Sometimes it's worth, uh, worthwhile for directors to be in another shoes to see what, what, what they would like to do and so forth. So now we have four directors who will be set, they're set, you are sound, you are costume, and you are lighting. And Dennis is going to be the director. And this is going to be their first meeting. Unfortunately, we don't have any wine or cheese. <laughs> and, and I hope, hopefully, that it will be a conversation that you people are kind of listening in. Do not ask questions. Do not offer suggestions. Let them have their say. And then you can actually observe saying that 
do you think that conversation is getting anywhere? Oh, wow, how wonderful that is. And then when, when they said they finished, they had nothing more to say, then Robert Wurzel, who is a famous lighting designer for Oswell, and he will kind of say, well, if I were you, I would have asked this question, how, how do you, what do you think about this and that, and then we'll open up to the floor. How about that? <laughs> okay, all right. So I guess just begin. Um, I guess what's exciting to me about getting together with more designers that I've never worked with before is there's, uh, but there's upsides and downsides. Like most directors, I drag a lot of my favorite designers all over the country with me because there's a certain shorthand you develop. Uh, I mean, I've got a lighting designer. I've done 22 shows, and I could sit in tech and go uh, pretty. That's the whole conversation, and he knows what I mean by prettier, as opposed to you know, somebody else is not. Uh, you also learn people's temperaments in tech, and you know the difference between what is a hissy fit and having a fit over something that really deserves to have a fit. So there are lots of nice things about about working with folks that you work with a lot. But what I also think the downside of that is that often you skip important steps when you work with somebody over and over and over again. You make assumptions. And a little meeting like this, which obviously we're way ahead in terms of our schedule here, we have a lot of lead time in this production. <coughs> wait, wait, nod, nod. And uh, so normally I would come into a first design meeting like this with like you know, a much stronger sense, having spent three or four months in play, of what I was going to do with it. What I like about this is the fact that I have very little idea of what I'm going to do with it. I have strong feelings about the play, about the characters, the language, the story, but. I'd like to sort of be kind of a vampire here. Uh, instead of Frankenstein lumbering in and throwing my weight around the room, I'd rather be Dracula and suck a little blood here for you guys. And here, it's mostly going to be about me asking questions. Um, I have a budget of your own paper that I sat down last night. I put everything on paper because there are things like my head is so filled with the words to the theme to Gillian's Island and important stuff like that. That I often don't have room for uh, stuff that I have to write it down to remember. So, uh, you know, forgive my occasionally referring to the notes, but uh, I will do that. Um, I think one other thing before we get started here is that the thing that can happen in a, in a first meeting like this is that sometimes the whole idea for the play I can get. I'm not proprietary about where I get wonderful ideas, whether it's actors, designers, steal it from somebody else's production, I don't care. Uh, I've got a Romeo and Juliet running right now, Orlando Shakespeare, that the idea for it came from a casual first conversation on the telephone with my costume designer. We were trolling about looking for an idea for the play. It's an idea. Um, and he mentioned that he'd read Anne Rice's Feast of All Saints, which takes place in New Orleans in the 1830s among the free persons of color. And my head just exploded with that. And I just waited and waited. I knew nothing about this community. What are you talking about? People were side by side. Pre-Civil War, they weren't slaves. It all, all the Montague Capulet stuff started falling together from a chance remark in the costume design. So I don't ever, you know, dismiss the possibility that you may give me the most important idea I ever have about this production. Uh, just sitting here and talking. So with that said, um, I don't know, I, I, I risk doing a little Barbara Walters thing on Oscar night here, asking some of these are going to sound very uh, if you were a twee, what kind of twee would you be? 
you know, I, I don't want to go there, but there are going to be some rudimentary questions here that, you know, don't feel like they're too condescending or anything. I don't know anything about how you feel about the play. So I guess the first thing I would ask, you know, any of you would be, what are the things when you read this play, uh, and when you see productions of it, when you think about it, what are the things you have a visceral response to that bring loose flesh to your arms and send a thrill up the spine? Are there things that make you want to go running to uh, your board and start drawing or to a, a CD and start listening to music? Things that you have, not an intellectual response necessarily, but a visceral, emotional response. Anything. A line, a, a character, a scene, an image, textual image. I think for me, the, the thing that always strikes me about this play is that the destructiveness at the beginning seems to happen so fast. I mean, we start off with jealousy that you know, we don't really explore where the jealousy comes right. from. It's just there, and it continues to grow and grow, and, and the destructiveness of that happens so fast. Which is very different even for Shakespeare. Lots of people talk about how the is rewriting of a fellow, but it's a revolutionary new idea that he doesn't supply motivation whatsoever. And I think that that, that, that jumps out. Yeah. And the flip side of that is that the healing then takes such a long time that you know, the, the, when we get to the end of that in span of time, that the destruction happens so fast with the healing and all the forgiveness of it takes so much longer. Yeah. So I, I find that contrast really interesting. Yeah. I do too. How do these environments interweave 
trip that I think is really interesting is look at something specific in the text that I think is so wonderful. When we first come in 4 4, uh, Brigida, the first time we've seen her, she starts talking right away about flowers. And about flowers and seasons in summer and winter, which fascinates me. Seasons in this play are really fascinating. And then she says something, you just said interweaving, which I think is so cool. She says, uh, You cease from me, we marry a gentler, a gentler sigh onto the wildest stalk may conceive a bark of baser kind of blood upon the race. It seems to me that there's something in that, that leads to the end of the play, which is always read as, as you know, the married couple is important. It seems to me that there's another thing going on between two uh, younger uh, stock. Uh, and, and a mingling of those, it seems to me, yeah. I mean, part, part of what in design land right. where you want to, to start off. Turn into 
something very practical. I I always have I've seen this play twice. Once in a very wonderful production, Adrian Noble brought over about ten years ago, and and in a sort of off Broadway thing that I thought missed the boat in a lot of ways, but has some interesting things. And in both productions, even the one that I thought was a tremendous production, Leontes remained somehow. I did not get into his world completely because I had a very difficult time getting this guy being so insanely jealous right from the top. I'd like to find a way, and what I'm asking you to think about visually, I'd like to find a way that the visual world that we see at the beginning of the play reinforces Leontes' character being unhinged. Because I believe Leontes is unhinged. I believe that he, I don't know how you would describe it in modern 21st century terms, whether it's bipolar, manic depressive, whatever. But I think that he weaves in and out of that scene, having a conversation with people around him as if everything's okay, and then he steps out and has that wonderful inner monologue stuff about that hideous, poisonous jealousy. Is there a way that with lights, sound, other elements of the set, that we can reinforce the idea that he is traveling back and forth between two poles? I personally think that might help an audience understand the man is having a breakdown. Right, so you say that, and the first thing that comes to my mind is asymmetry. Thinking about space in terms of things not necessarily being parallel, not necessarily being. But there's something about his world, his talents, that is asymmetrical. Um, I don't know what that means. Well, I mean, just brainstorming here, possibility that if you used images from classical antiquity, whether it's pillars, statuary, and these are things that sort of jump out at you from the, when you read the play, these are sometimes images that can jump out at you. But if there is a certain distortion, if there is a certain uh, way that, or even a way that the way they're lit in and out of the scene, I'm not very easily turn this into a bad Twilight Zone moment where the aunties is having a conversation, he turns around, all of a sudden the light goes blue and it starts, you know, going off about how it's insane and jealous. And I, I don't know how far you can go with it, but then it's theater, it's not a movie. It's sometimes those huge theatrical choices can be some of the most wonderful choices you make. So I'm not exactly afraid of it, but I think there's, whether it's a subtle or an unsubtle way of doing it, is there a way in your mind with sound, I'm thinking sound a lot in terms of underscoring something that's happened, this brain weight that he's having. I think it could be, I mean, it's interesting, because if it's sound to the lights, then you can turn it on and off, whereas if it's the set, we always look like we're in the actor's mind, and right. it just becomes expressionist I, somehow. I think that's a great point. But if the sound and lights, um, I mean, yeah, you can do background noises, you can do subtle, almost subliminal things, you can do music, um, but I think, uh, when, before I would even know where to start with that, I would want to ask you, in this production, um, are we using um, are we using hidden theatrical machinery? I mean, are we going to have like recorded sound and things that are done technologically, or are we going to put it all out there and be able to see the workings of it? Meaning, it's a type of music plays a large part, and also the, the transitions of time play a large part. So, is this about you know obvious theatrical artifice, or is it about illusion? For me, it's always uh, obvious artificial artifice, theatrical artifice, because to me. I embrace the actual choices. Uh, I, I don't make movies, I make plays, and with, to me, the world of a play uh, needs to be able to travel in places that you normally wouldn't go. So, to me, music, sound is as easily as important as 
that means occasionally underscoring, it occasionally means unmotivated sound that comes from somewhere. That you don't have to go, oh, by the way, the radio is turned on here, and that's what's coming. You know, that doesn't interest me. I think that there can be huge theatrical choices that, you know, without necessarily turning it into, you know, I don't know, Richard Foreman or something avant garde, can that be motivated. When, when, when the audience perceives this space, No, not necessarily. Yeah, I, I think it can be something that sneaks up on us. So one sound idea just for brainstorming that if there's some kind of social occasion going on in the first scene, like a lot of courtiers are around, it's like a party, a cocktail party or something, Leontes and Hermione and Felicity's kind of break off the map to have the discussion, then there might be live musicians on stage. And when we're seeing the social exterior, we might support a dance or something, when we go into Leontes' mind, or that, or that sound gets distorted. Yeah. I mean, the wonderful thing about technology yeah. today, yeah, but one, but you can do things with five dollars now in terms of being able to sculpt sound, yeah. so that with a couple of floor mics and two hanging mics, you can create strange little echoes and shape the sound in actors' voices as well as the music that are very actually inexpensive and easy to do. Would you be interested in something like? Uh, Say you had a couple of lords grab one of the lights, you know, and you know, like YouTube, pull it around. And do sure, I again, that's another thing that I'm interested in finding unconventional ways uh, to do. For example, for Shakespeare Play, I remember it was Julius Caesar, and we lit the storm scene uh, totally by flashing. Right, we used absolutely no light above at all, and to me, it was an incredibly dramatic. Effective way to do it. So, you know, I, yeah, that sounds like an interesting idea. I think, you know, having not nailed down, and I don't expect to, exactly what it is, what world this is set in yet, I don't know what that would be, but it could be any number of things. Uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, torchlight is wonderful on stage. I guess if you don't have to start talking about some of these questions, I want to ask you what I think is almost always one of the first things I want to know about the approaching Shakespeare play. And that's how do you see the relationship between the actors and the audience at this play? I mean, when we do a size, are we talking directly to the audience? Are we going out there among them? Are they eavesdropping on personal thoughts? My, that now? my personal experience with speaking to the, uh, doing sides and doing monologues is that direct address is almost always the best solution. 98% of the time. So in that case, if you're talking about using Amplified sound at times and so forth. Is that going to create? I mean, you know, you, is that going to create a wall that you don't want there, or do you want? I, mean, I don't think so. But could it be brought in? Would it be brought in only during in, internal uh, monologue, perhaps? That just maybe, yeah, maybe. But I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't totally exclude the possibility to be used elsewhere. But I, I think if it were a device that helped us get inside his brain, he could okay. open the play up for people that know. often he doesn't get open. Yeah. I want to take some steps backwards. Yes. I, I feel like we're getting to some specific things. And yes. And you, you touched upon this Leontes that you want the visual world to support him being unhinged. When he walks out on stage for the first time, do we see that immediately? And, and, and what? And uh, so, I don't think you can play it back. For, 
Yeah. What I'm looking for is for you to maybe, without giving us, what is, this is exactly what he looks like. What is the essence of this rule? What is, who is this character? What is this character? And if we're, and if we're thinking about designing this world to be representational or to be connected with this character, what is that? Well, if you just basically go to the story of the play, he's the king. And, 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 and that's not to be dismissed. King, he's treated as a king. He, the, the problem, one of the problems of the play is that he turns out to be a quote unquote bad king, making bad decisions, in the sense that everybody else in the court, if you go by Shakespeare's text, thinks that his accusations, when they eventually discover them, are they're, they're somewhat insane. And yet they. Yeah, because I was going to say, he's also a bad king. I mean, he's also a king who is extremely Okay, people talk about you know, Paul does, but not very many other people do. That's what I think it brings about a lot of rage in Carolina, is that she has the character to stand up to him, hold the baby up in the air and say, you're a good queen, while almost no one else around her. I mean, eventually they do, they do begin to rally, but it takes a while. In, the, in Act 4, in terms of Polixenes' behavior with uh, uh, Florzel and uh, Perdita, says a lot about the fact that he has a little bit of that poison in him, too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. He has to, you know, run from the country and sees these terrible things that result from a bad decision by a man in power. And yet, when he has this possible moment with his own son, he goes off on the time of his own. But a lot of what we're saying here, though, makes me feel like we're looking at Leontes as the problem in the play. He's bad, and everybody else has to cope with that. Yeah, it's, it's, over so it's easy to overstate. But it's also a good story, in a way. I mean, don't we have to kind of be inside his mind in order to experience the play with him, or is it somebody else's story? And he's the problem. I don't know how useful it has ever been for me to say it is one person's story or another person's story. I, I know that. There are many people who approach it that way. That, that's, I, I get a little scared off by that idea. I, I don't know that we have to, getting inside his mind in the sense that we begin to understand what's going on with it is one thing. Getting behind him as a protagonist, I think, is a huge difficulty. But don't we have to to some extent because if we're going to really be moved by and finally being reborn and, and, and learning what he learns don't we have to always feel that there's something of value in him that, that ultimately comes out? On some level, absolutely. 
Let's, let's, I want to move on to another question, just because we have such a limited time. Um, um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, what is that something of value? <laughs> what is that something? You said that there is something of value. I think it goes back to what the play is about. But, I mean, reducing that, again, is a little bit more exercise in frustration. But to me, one thing that the play is about is hope living on. What I mean by that is it's a play about a bear that doesn't eat a baby. Everybody talks about the bear running on and chasing off Antigonus and killing him. And, and, and all the fact, but to me, the most remarkable thing of it is, is the baby is laying there and the bear doesn't eat the baby. What that says to me is that Shakespeare is writing about the future and the possibility of a new generation and of things like love renewing itself in the same way that nature renews itself year after year after year. So that, I guess, to me, is a core issue of the play. That if I had to boil it down to a 50 sentence or two, it's about the bear that doesn't need a baby. Quickly, let's see. But in terms of Leontos, what is in Leontos' character that we care about? I think it takes a long time for us to care about him. Um, I think that uh, his jealousy is rather incoherent. It sometimes makes his language incoherent. It, 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 it seems unmotivated. It seems unreasonable. You don't get from the behavior that, between Hermione and Polixenes that he has this reason to be going off the deep end. So in the beginning, I think you're very in, there's an antipathy about your feelings about uh, uh, that character. I think the challenge is that it doesn't sustain all the way through the play. But don't you think that some, on some level jealousy really often is just like the result of too much love? I mean, he loves her so much and he's so afraid of losing her. So if the pain of that, where that comes from, I think it's clear in the acting, then the way that love, the good side of that love is ultimately rewarded. Yeah. I think it's much more true in a film where we get to see a lot of that stuff yeah. laid out for us. I think that he was maybe up to something a little different. Can I say what that difference is? I'm not sure I can right now. Uh, but I do know that it's very different in that we don't get all that ground. What we get is a man who is off his rocker right from the beginning. I'm oversimplifying saying off his rocker. But we see an insane jealousy that seems to be coming from a, a place of nothing. But not the very beginning. I mean, there is this definite moment. I mean, he's not thinking about that when he first sees him. I mean, you ask Definitely, yes. I think he has to be able to have a veneer of social graces, and because nobody's accusing him in the first scene, we're crazy. All this stuff is being privately revealed to us as an audience member, spoken to his young son Emilius, who cannot understand what he's talking about. So he has to have that surface of being able to carry on a conversation and look his wife in the eye and shake things in his hand and all this stuff without seeming like a crap. So you think he's already jealous before he walks out? I can't imagine that you could just dredge that up and look at a touch. I think it has to be brewing there. So the Lixenese has been there for nine months. Because when we first see him, he's trying to get the Lixenese to stay. He's getting him to stay. So on the surface. He can't. On the surface. But I think in Shakespeare, they're always saying what he needs to go. 
I think it ha there has to be a sudden, there has to be sudden or else you, the whole, the whole thing. But that, I also believe that you can want two things that are totally <laughs> go against each other. Every, all of those things. So it's not about watching and then coming back together and that's that's an element in it, but I wouldn't make it all about that. Isn't that my auntie's playing? Yes. Um, Do you see this as uh, our goal is to try to make this uh, rational and meaningful as possible, so we try to smooth out? You know, or is it to make it a No, I, I, when you smooth out all the rough edges, then you just get flabby. No, no, no. It doesn't work for me that way. But I, I do think that one of the dilemmas of the play is allowing the audience into the main story. And obviously, the main story to me for the first three acts is the auntie and his jealousy, uh, somewhat unreasonable jealousy over his wife and his best friend. So, to me, it becomes a dilemma as a director how do I tell that story and make people believe it without making it crazy, just crazy, and without making him. Direct address is that there's not a great deal of direct address. I mean, that's, you know, don't get too crazy talking about that because it's not like there are plenty of other Shakespeare plays where there's a lot more direct address. Right. This, this has some of them. Uh, the wonderful speeches about sluicing the, the neighbors the neighbors, and all that. You know, it's wonderful, but it's, there's not a whole lot of sound. Yeah. So, you're really keen on this whole living on. Uh huh. So, Set up what happens at the end 
which by the way I'm not sure what happens at the end in terms of I'm very torn about that miracle thing at the end. What about the rest of the person who's kept alive? Yeah, the yeah because I, I, I think you can never ignore Shakespeare's clues. And when he talks about her aging 16 years, and he talks about Pauline going there three times a day, these aren't things you just sort of make up excuses to ignore. Great, so you're really looking at these things as kind of clues? Yes. Okay. Every, every line of Shakespeare is That's an instruction from the bard to do something. Does he speak for you, Marcos? No. no. It's interesting because uh, that tragic impulse on the top of the first three acts was definitely present and it was a very compelling first three acts. And it really raises some questions about what happens later. Yeah. When you, when you go that direction, you really put in that sort of drive of, uh, towards some sort of violent conclusion or some sort of incompetent that never comes. It, it's really problematic. You can see why the director wants to go there. Yeah. I think, you know, I'd like to maybe talk about traps that you yeah. see in the play, because that, for me, the directorial trap is you try to make this play hilarious, um, which it is. And it has wonderful comic elements in it. Paulina has wonderful little comic things that totally contradict the passion of, that she has of, of exhorting Leontes to come back to reason. And yet there, there will be these little moments where she's funny. Uh, and I think wisely you put that <coughs> stuff in there. But if you try to make this... Uh, comedy of errors or something for, for a big surprise. I think those first three acts have to have that weight, that, that emotional weight and, and sense of doom even uh, at times. I but you would agree that Autolycus in that man is, is meant to be funny. Oh, of course, of course. Of course. It's a, I mean, he obviously is breaking all the rules as Shakespeare is wont to do. You know, that, the hell with the, the, the classic 16 years go on. You know, that's the thing you, you never do. You know, literally, and as a guy come out of his time, it's a, which leads me a little bit to this question about time. When we talk about that, and what does that mean to any of us? How did that get accomplished? So, uh, but, but yes, he goes from what appears to be a very tragic tale to suddenly a pastoral affair, you know, with, uh, with, with food and people singing and, you know, country bumping characters and, and that's it's wildly Because I mean, because and it sets up the relationship between 
the Father and the Son. Yes. And it's saying we've got the, the old, and the Son is you know representing the new, and the Son is seen as death, and you know, and here's this baby. So it's it's like okay, we're going to be starting from scratch almost. Yes, what springs them? Right. I mean, so so there, there is that sense of. Um, it starts to make more sense to me the more that I read through it that there is this there's that inch I, I call it I don't know what else you want to call there's an inch right there each time I read the play I feel more and more that Shakespeare knew exactly what he was doing that there is a tremendous sense of structure in terms of the first three acts being a, a thesis act four being uh, a antithesis and act five being a synthesis of these two worlds in fact he does bring two worlds together by bringing or Ellen Perdita to the court. And yes, it's an oversimplification, yes, but but I do believe that he was up to something very specific. It wasn't just about, oh, he wrote the first three acts in 1604 and then fell asleep for two years and wrote the next two acts. He's not a, he's never sloppy. But you know, I think the play can feel a lot more unified when you stop thinking about it in terms of genre. And I actually think that it's a huge trap I mean, I hate the fact that so many uh, complete works editions have the comedies, the tragedies, the histories, because the genres are always more fluid than that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, who cares? Twelfth Night's one of the saddest plays that they've ever written. Right, and Hamlet can be hilarious. And I think, a bit, I think it can be a huge trap, and it can cause enormous problems for actors if you try to talk too much about tragedy versus comedy. And, because, and I never will. But you can mention the relationships of, you know, the funny stuff will be funny. But, um, and I think there's, there's a lot of potential tragedy even in the in the Bohemia scenes, I mean, the conflict between Melissa's and Flores, it's not that we go from a completely dark world to a completely dark world at all. But it's interesting to think that this is romance just because the romance genre doesn't even come into existence until the 19th century. Right. They right. label uh, romance. But those are all just categories. But I think there's something really useful in that. I, I, I do. How, how do you Well, just from a design standpoint, what is a romance to a 19th century mind? And what is it? What is, what is it opening up? What possibilities are really available for flowers on the mountain? Yeah, I was like a pretty Raphael like art. Right, right. Is there anything that that brings to the table that's useful? Well, as long as you're segueing into artists, visual artists, painters, sculptors, music. Oh, what's that? The sound guy. Well, no. I mean, are there any other, you know, any other artists that sort of jump into your head as you're reading this play? I don't know. I I have one in mind that I'd like to share with you, but I just assume I'm prejudiced. Could you please? <laughs> please, prejudice. <laughs> I just happened to have a play this evening at Top of Up. Oh, my God. So, Look at the time. I'm the time is flying. This is a painting by George Stubbs called uh, Lion Attacking a Horse. It's from uh, 1770. And... I'm not going to say that this is about palette. I'm not going to say this is about anything other than when I see this, that tells me something very visceral about the relationship between Leontes and, and Hermione. The look on that, the terrified look on the horse's face, the, the, the weight of all these things around, that beautiful white. I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to say exactly what it is about a painting that you're responding to. But I have to yeah. Because you don't, you don't see the lion's face. No, no, you're seeing the reaction of creature being attacked. No, but we've been talking so much about his 
not just because that was a hook I was interested in, because if I don't understand Leontes as an audience member, I don't understand the play. I think Hermione is a little, more, to my mind, a little more straightforward. So, uh, do you want us maybe just do you want us to imagine this? Should we no, see it? no, I don't even know that you have to be that literal. About it. No, I, 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 it's a feeling of terror. No, I think of Hermione when I say that, quite honestly. Of what happens to her. I mean, what happens to her, here is this woman who has everything. She's on top of the world and says she's a queen. People love her. She's in a position of power and wealth. She's pregnant, about to have her second baby. And her husband suddenly turns to her and says, you fucking whore. Out of nowhere. And she's thrown into a prison cell to have her baby on a dirt floor. That'd be the face I'd have on. That'd be the look I'd have on my face. That happens to me. How does that inform what you're going to take? What you're going to do? I'm not sure. But you know, just just throwing out uh, something. It's only ever happened. Yeah. I might mean, not ask this question. Okay. So yeah. I see. Tom, he has to go through a logic. <laughs> 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 Listen, I gotta go. <laughs> Right now, you know, taxes are fifty bucks. Do you feel you're getting someplace? <clears throat> um, yes. I was supposed to. Do you see it as like this great romantic background? Are you seeing that kind of, of world that we're in? Uh, if I were to talk about my gut, what happens in my gut when I read those first three acts, I, I don't see a big romance. I, I see very stark <clears throat> images. You, you know what I? I, I see a lot of. White pillars, and but I, that's not what I want you to go away and draw white pillars. But I, I get a sense of a court that is that is stark and uh, um, good boy. Yeah, that's what I meant when I was talking about the essence of this world. These characters. I, I think there's something forbidding about the court. I think whether that's shafts of white light mixed in with white pillars and dark shadows, I don't know. But, but, no, I think from the very beginning we need to see a place that is somewhat inhuman and antiseptic. Uh, but that's, you know... You see it as a, as a kind of like a catchy landscape, like a landscape that's falling into blight? Trees with no leaves? I tell you what's interesting about that you bring up that. Because, as again, as I continue to read the play, those were the initial impulses were like, you had the stark pillars and shafts of white light and you know classical antiquity images and then you go to Bohemia and there's a picnic and green grass and sap on the trees and whatever. Uh, and then I started as I would reread the first three acts, those little nature images began to creep into the first three acts. And what that said to me was that don't oversimplify in terms of pounding them over the head. This is a horrible stark world with this bad king, and then there's the happy little you know sheep herders or whatever. I, I think that Hermione's presence in the court is a humanizing thing, and whether that brings nature imagery into this stark world of the court, I don't know. But but I don't know what you mean. Bohemia come out of it? Can I tell an anecdote?
show a lot of Bohemia for that scene. You know, it's, it's a character with the baby and the bear chasing the moth, and then we have a little bit with the shepherd and the clown, and then intermission. And then you can build your Bohemia or whatever if you have to do it. But it's kind of interesting that if there is a maybe perhaps a slightly magical sprouting of Bohemia out of the world of... Uh, but you have that here in this book. I mean, in this picture, uh-huh. you don't necessarily talk about it. Yeah. Much, but How do you mean? Well, you have... Shakespeare's never about black and white. You know, it's never uh, here's the bad guy. I mean, Iago is the most one of the most compelling characters in in Othello, and when they are the bad guy, you're almost rooting for them half the time. So I think the idea that this is just a bad, a malignant court that has become poisoned by is sort of a a sophomore idea. I think we should avoid. That's a trap. So moving away from the first idea of the environment of the first act, sort of embodying the actor's mental state. No, no, I don't think you have to. I don't think you have to give that up. I'd like to still think yeah, about that. Yeah, you know, I think it has it can have elements. Of the subject, um, How's it what? I put that together in my mind. Like if the, if the first three acts have a natural subject sort of starkness, but then they also reflect the actor's mental state, which is royal and passionate. I don't know. Question. <laughs> they were vague to me too. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yes, I'm remembering a conversation. <laughs> so, you know, I sort of blacked out there for a moment. Gilligan's Island was in my head. Um, yes, it's a procedure. <laughs> Doesn't sit, sit right back and you hear a tale. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think we, we are coming to an end? Uh, this is uh, uh, America. 
American Airlines that you trouble for you Or you think you are winding up or uh, where, where, where do you stand? I'd like to maybe just one or two more okay, questions. All right, all right. Uh, and these, these are a little more specific, maybe, but uh, <clears throat> there's a, a, a break in Act One where Polina goes to prison. I'd like you to think about what signifies prison to you so that it doesn't come across. The thing I hate about many productions of Shakespeare is shunting furniture on and off. I mean, there's a certain amount of that you sometimes have to do, but I try to avoid it like the play. And I wonder what it is about light and sound and set that can economically and quite specifically say, this is where we are. Well, let me talk metaphorically. Yeah. It symbolizes prison to me in this way. It's the fact that Hermione is in this place, whether alive or dead, for the amount of yourself why not only what does Shakespeare mean by what he gave us but why didn't he give us a scene with Hermione in the prison in other words he has a scene at the prison but Hermione's not why is that why, you know why does that well, that's exactly what we're imagining you can imagine how horrible it is now sometimes the unsaid and the un, I mean, if you were to hear Hermione sobbing in the distance and and I mean, I don't know. It's just you just hear, you just hear like clinking bars or clinking keys and stuff before he comes in, or he's dressed appropriately. You do not, we're not really in the chair. Yeah, and speaking to you as a sound designer, it's so easy to manipulate the sound in a scene like that, where, where suddenly we're in a stone space that is ten times larger, or smaller, or however you want to go with it. But you know, a tweak of the dial, and you can make people's voices do wonderful things. So, Dennis, what are the other questions? American Airlines is really big. Okay, okay. Well, that may be, uh, that may be, uh, I have lots of good ideas. Yeah, you said sometimes the unsaid, what, 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 so never underestimate the power, not only of the written word, but also of the unwritten word. Would you just quickly tell us why you chose this You may have hinted at things that I wrote down. No, I mean, really, I'll be honest with you, I've directed 75 plays, I chose none of In the world where I live, uh, I get handled. I pitch plays all the time. They usually end up in the artistic director next season, and he's directing. Uh, but uh, I've never actually had the opportunity, except in university theater, where I got to do crazy things like adding machine or whatever. Uh, um, I, I get handed. This was handed to me, and I'm delighted that it was handed. Do you think we are? Yeah. So we're going to get it. Thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage.
This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographer Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.